Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have Vivi Ganeshanathan here. Thanks so much so for having he, me. Did I get it? Let's Ganeshanathan. Ganeshanathan. It's uh, you know, it's uh, by the end of the program, right? Um, Vivi Ganeshanathan. Thank you here. so much for having me. Um, it's great to see you here in the studio. Um, we're going to be talking. Uh, may I call you Sugi? Please. Okay, Sugi. This is, this, this is not something just off the top of my head, but rather this is a nickname from family and friends. Is it Sugi? Is that? That's right. Um, and and it, Vivi became your writer's name because um, someone had suggested it to you because of the length of your last name, perhaps? Or what? how did it come about? How did... Uh, Probably not the first question you were expecting. No, no, no. That's, I mean, I, 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 um, I used to work at the Atlantic Monthly right after I graduated from college, and I spent some time working with James Fallows, who's one of the national correspondents, and um, his family are friends of they're the whole family, sort of friends. And um, when I had my first article come out in the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, Jim called me and said, I've been thinking, you know, this is your chance to have a different byline. And it hadn't really occurred to me. I'd been using Vasugi V. Ganeshanathan all through college. And he had come up with this. And he pitched it to me. And he was very convincing. You know, I have the alliterative initials. There's sort of a long tradition of South Asian double-initialed writers. It has this sort of mystery to it. And he he said that it would sort of prevent me from overwhelming people with too much name and which was which was perhaps not inaccurate so you know I wasn't going to get rid of my last name certainly and I mean I didn't think of this as getting rid of my first name but just sort of a it's it's fun to have a pen name I, I got a kick out of it yeah I love it actually thank you it's good and then does anyone call you VV or sometimes you know um when people are introducing me in formal settings or don't know that I have a nickname Sometimes I get introduced as Vivi, and I have to—I've had to retrain myself in the past couple of years to p- pick up my head and, and pay attention when people say it. I'm not quite in the habit of it yet. My students certainly don't call me that. So, do they call you Sugi? They Sugi? mostly do. They do. Uh, yeah. The undergraduates call me Professor G or Professor Professor Ganeshanathan, um, which is which is nice too. <laughs> Professor Ganeshanathan, yeah, or Professor G. <laughs> Which is fine. I told them it's not supposed to be a cause of stress for them. Right. <laughs> but I love my name. You are kind. You're a kind woman. Um, well, Suki's here today to talk about her novel, Love Marriage. And this was out with Random House 2008, Sugi. Um, and later in the program, we'll be hearing a little piece of it. Um, but but let, well, to kick us off, I'll read the short bio in the back, and then we'll fill in the pieces. Um, Vivi Ganeshananthan received her B.A. in 2002 from Harvard, where love marriage began as her senior thesis. She graduated from the Iowa Workers Writers' Workshop. <laughs> yeah, it's really the Iowa Workers, right? <laughs> I'm all in a muddle, <laughs> hoping to pronounce your last name correctly. Okay, let's go from the top there. She graduated from the Iowa Writers' Workshop in 2005 served for a year as the writer-in-residence at Phillips Exeter Academy, and earned an M.A. in journalism from Columbia University in 2007. Love Marriage is her first novel. She lives here in Ann Arbor. And you moved from New York City, didn't you, Sugi? I did. Is that what you can- how, how is the adjusting going from moving from sort of one of the hubs of the world um, to more to of another a quiet- hub of the world? <laughs> 
it to another hub. Yes. Yeah. Hub being more appropriate for our area being close to Detroit, exactly. too. <laughs> I like it a lot here. I, I feel very lucky to have a job that I love and really fantastic students and colleagues. And I'm loving my first year here. I visited here for the first time, actually, when I was still a um, I just started as a student at the workshop, and I came here to do a panel at the Cranbrook School as a follow-up to something I had done at the, the Atlantic the previous spring. So that was sort of my, I think that was my first visit here, or maybe my second visit here. And then I came here again on book tour. And Did you read at Shaman Drum? Or I actually you... read at Borders. Oh, at Borders, um, okay. And I know that, you know, the Borders here is the original flagship Borders, and that was kind of a fun special to read one. there. Yeah. yeah, but actually I didn't, you know, right when I moved here, Shaman Drum... I, I walk past the the closing. I walk I walk past Shaman Drum every day on the way to work, and I sort of this this casket. <laughs> it makes me sad because I feel like I never really got to. I hear all these wonderful stories about that bookstore, but yeah. So my first few visits to Ann Arbor, um, I saw the borders and and saw some of the the local schools and and things like that, and was really impressed with the town every time I came. And when I was offered the job here, I was just really thrilled to to move here. I really like it. Oh. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you here. I speak on behalf of all of University <laughs> of Michigan and beyond, apparently. <laughs> Absolutely thrilled, Sugi. Oh, thanks, T. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about about your 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 novel and, and go from there. Um, because you began writing it in the sophomore year at Harvard. Yes, Is that that's true? Right. So uh, was that something... We, so is it fair to say that ever since you were a, a child, you were writing pieces of things? Or, or was writing something that you came to as a more serious endeavor when you went to Harvard and, and worked on the Crimson, etc.? I was always pretty serious about wanting to be a writer and wanting to write. And I think that fortunately, one thing that really fed my writing time when I was younger is that I, I'm kind of a master procrastinator. And... So I would procrastinate from all my other homework by writing. I think my parents thought that I was spending more time on my homework than any child could possibly have to spend, and that's because I wasn't really doing my homework. Such a good child. <laughs> I was just so diligent. <laughs> and so I would just, yeah, I would spend loads of time writing and, and really mostly incredibly terrible things. And um, I have some of the stories that I've written that I, that I wrote when I was little and I, I still did you bring any with you no thank god <laughs> um but sometimes I, I like to I like to look them over every once in a while and sort of laugh and also remember that you know when I was a kid I was so uninhibited and had so much fun writing and I want to make sure that that's something that I keep because um, it was I really love reading children's literature and young adult literature and and I think that a lot of the books that I read when I was younger I think it's, it's interesting because you always get asked stuff like who are your influences and things like that. And I think let's do that one now. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, so I was, I had, um, I taught at Skidmore college in upstate New York last fall and Juno Diaz came to campus and he got asked this question. He had this awesome answer that I always quote, cause it's just so much better than what I would come up with, come up no. with. <laughs> but, um, he said, you know, how could you know? And, you know, sort of who do I think my influences are? Who do I want my influences to be? Or who, who are they actually, you know, how could we know? So, and I think that he has you know, a really good point. I, I always sort of read as much as I could. Um, and I read comics and I watched sci-fi and I read fantasy and 
I read biographies and adult books and like what books. kind of like when you say comics like which kind and sci-fi and uh, or fantasy and bios like can you throw any of those like yeah specifics sure out? I really loved I remember I loved Madeline Langle and actually yes there was news um that a wrinkle in time a wrinkle in time is gonna be a movie what oh it's gonna be a movie it's so exciting I saw this on Twitter yesterday because horrifyingly I am on Twitter and. <laughs> It's going to be a movie, and I'm so excited about this. So my editor and I, who have known each other since since we were about five years old. Is that Becca Shapiro? That is or, Becca okay. Shapiro. Do you know Becca Shapiro? I, no, I, I read it know. in your yes. acknowledgments. Yes. Um, so she and I are going to go see this together, because it was one of the first books that we read together. Um, you know, we also read good, huge chunks of the Babysitter's Club. So, you know, highbrow, <laughs> lowbrow. I have no shame. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I love picturing you reading that. And yeah, because that, that the Madeline Olingo series was um, like there's at least four, right? And did she read also write also? She wrote a lot of other books too, and, yeah. and books for adults as well. Um, I prefer her children's literature, but oh, so you read the others as well? I read some did... of the others. I read some of the novels for adults as well. Well, when you were a little kid, just I was pretty. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't that old. I think. Yeah. Well, that's funny. Do you remember one of the biographies you read? I read a lot of biographies, bizarrely, of Elvis. <laughs> Maybe Brian can get us some Elvis. <laughs> it's okay, Brian. Spare us. Um, and let's see. I remember reading the biography of the woman who, um, Mrs. Von Trapp, from The Sound, oh, of, from music, the Sound of Music, her autobiography. I remember reading that because it was in my elementary school library. And I think if Gary Coleman wrote a biography, I might have read that. Um, that's, a, that's a don't miss. I mean, I think I could probably have skipped it. <laughs> so, so you were reading everything in your school library, yeah. and and even the the town library. Did you did you grow up in Maryland, Sugi? Where did you? I did. I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, which has in both incredible public schools and incredible public libraries. And I was really fortunate to have parents who would you know scrupulously take me to the library pretty much whenever I wanted and allow me to check out inordinate numbers of books. And I was a big nerd. So <laughs> so there are maybe small pieces of you that surface, of course, in your narrator of love marriage. Because I think there's one, um, there's a moment that you give the narrator where you say, I think that um, she was allowed to like check out 30 books per weekend. Like they'd go to the public library and the librarians, you know, knew her and would say how she grew over the course of a week or so. Um, so it, was that maybe one of those, you know, you can't keep the pieces of the self are going to emerge in different ways in the novel, right? <laughs> are you Don't saying make the narrator's a nerd too? <laughs> no. no. So yes, the narrator, the narrator does, does the narrator does love the library. It's one of the, actually, I think the relatively few things we have in common, but I was, it was nice to sort of, I wanted to have a little, there's a little library shout out. Yes. Um, she does, she does love reading, but then she doesn't, she doesn't turn out to, she, she wants to be a doctor. So, um, and that was kind of, that it was interesting to do a lot of research on stuff that I didn't really know about for the book, which was one of one of the really fun things and one of the things that I think I learned in and the what library. Did, what did that research encompass? Like, what were some of the things you had to go to? Were these things that you even thought you might know, but then once you started thinking about them, you thought, oh, wait a second. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> what about this piece of history? Or Definitely. I think, um, particularly when it comes to Sri Lankan history and politics, you can get a lot of different takes, but they are from particular perspectives. And I think my perspectives became more and more rounded out by the different things I read, the more and more I, I was working on the book. And when I was at the University of Iowa, I remember 
going to look up Sri Lanka in the University of Iowa libraries, and there was something like a thousand books. So someone must have been there before me who had a particular research interest, or maybe they just had a really excellent library. But I mean, I didn't get through everything I could have gotten through there. And Phillips Exeter had the biggest high school library in the world. So, you know, wherever I went, there was stuff for me to read and, and stuff that I, I, I felt sort of spoiled by information and in did the best way. Oh, that, yes, yes. And is that, um, were you writing most of Love Marriage um, before you went to Iowa? Or was it where you were writing, mo- did most of the work on the novel? Like when you arrived, did you already have novel in hand sort of to... Uh, I guess I had um, I had a complete draft when I graduated from college. Oh, okay. Well, let's hear more. We're going to take a short break, right. um, and then we'll come back. We'll we'll hear more about it. Then maybe a, a little bit from the novel, if you don't mind, Sugi. Great. Okay. So today on the program, we've got the novel Love Marriage and Vivi Ganeshananthan. Am I getting closer? Ganeshananthan, you totally got it. Ganeshananthan. Thank goodness. Well, I'm T. Hetzel. Sometimes I even get my own name wrong. We'll be right back. Whenever you're ready, we're rolling on two. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers today. I'm so happy to have Sugi here. Um, uh, her pen name, Vivi Ganeshanathan. Ganeshanathan, you're totally fine. Ganeshanathan. If you would like to know how to pronounce my last name or read about it at length, there is a handy essay that I wrote on my website that I wrote when I was 19. And Where is that? I should have been, I no, should no, no, have no, actually been in, like in memorizing. We were just talking at the break and, and I can say it until then I have to say it. Uh, <laughs> it's you fun. know what? I'll just point every time as we're, <laughs> when we're doing that. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, self ID here. <laughs> it's totally fine. Um, but it's funny because I wrote this essay for my uh, college newspapers magazine when I was a freshman in college and I keep it on my website because 
first of all, I mean, people used to come sort of be like, oh, you know, I was trying to figure out how to say your name. And then I found this essay and I was sort of like, this essay is a life of its own. So I, I left it up. <laughs> um, and I wrote it at this point, you know, over 10 years ago, but it's still really handy. And it's got this little guide and sort of, you know, all of my travails with my name. Oh, what are some of the travails? And may this not be one of the larger ones. Oh, no, my God. It's such a pleasure (laughs) to be here. You know, stuff like, you know, when I took the SATs, I was Ganeshananth Vasug. Oh, Oh, really? There's just not enough boxes. Oh, and then the band teacher. What was that? that Oh, I had a, I had a, there was a guest band conductor when I was in high school and he was leading the band that I was in for for a weekend, and he uh, he called me "Hey You" for the whole weekend. Dude did not even want to say my first name, so it's fine. I mean, it's this is. I mean, I don't know. I, I appreciate when people try, but it's sort of you know, it's not like a it's not a test. Oh, <laughs> and if it were, you would be passing. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> You're a sweetheart. But so so you play the saxophone. I That's, do play the saxophone. So is that a passion of yours, Sugi? Is that one of the things that you've done also ever since you were little? You were writing the stories and playing the saxophone? I mostly play the saxophone because my older brother played the saxophone. And I was just as cool as him. And in fact, I played a bigger saxophone for a while. Which so, which one then? Would it be the tenor? Or? I play the tenor saxophone. Okay. And my brother and I studied with the same saxophone teacher. And we had a terrific, terrific music teachers in, in middle school and high school and I played a little bit into college, and then my freshman year of college, I had an accident where I fell down a flight of stairs and tore a bunch of ligaments in my right oh, hand. No. So sort of, do you want to write or do you want to play the saxophone? And I, wasn't, I loved playing the saxophone, but I wasn't going to be a professional or anything, and I did want to be a writer. So um, I do still play. When I was at Exeter, actually, I played, um, I played saxophone when I was at Exeter, which was a nice, nice break. I haven't quite figured out where to practice here. I think the English department might not be that. My my fourth floor office mates might not be super happy about that if I just busted out with a bebop but may- during office hours. I don't know. I think that would be glorious. <laughs> Liven it up a bit. Not that it's not lively. Not. Anyone listening there on the fourth floor, very lively. Very lively. But there's got to be music rooms. So we'll, 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 we'll have to figure something out. Figure we'll, out. Well, yeah. Maybe North Campus. You can have your own studio room or oh, something. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Who knows? The sky's the limit. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Um, well, let's talk a little bit, Sugi, about... Um, could you frame the novel for us? Um, give us an intro, and then maybe we'll hear um, a short section of it. Sure. Wherever you'd like to read. Okay. It's wonderful. Okay. Um, well, the novel is um, about a Sri Lankan family that emigrates all over the world. And the sort of present-day storyline is in the United States and Canada, and it's from the point of view of a Sri Lankan-American girl whose parents haven't told her necessarily a lot about Sri Lanka, and she doesn't really know very much about it. And then one day, her parents ask her to meet them in Toronto, and she goes to meet them in Toronto, and she realizes that they're there to meet her long-lost uncle, who has been missing for a couple of decades. And it turns out that he's been involved in militancy and separatism in Sri Lanka. And so... He's a tiger. He's a tiger. He's an ex-tiger. He's, ex- he's yeah. a, got a complicated relationship with the Tamil Tigers, who are the the militant group that he sort of a higher up in. And he's basically come to Canada to die because he's terminally ill. And so this is sort of her impetus to sort of figure out who he is and what she thinks of him. And he comes with her cousin, who's about her age and has sort of very, very different ideas than she does about pretty much everything. 
and they have a little bit of a contentious relationship. So um, it's it's kind of about... And, and that's mostly the ideas are political as well as cultural because her mother was also um, one of the Tamil tigers right. too and has died. Right. And like, I hope... Yeah, yeah that's... that's, that's so there's, I mean, it's a it's a large and complicated family. It's one of those it's one of those books with a family tree at the front. But yes, <laughs> um, I don't know when there's and a too small map of Sri, Sri Lanka. I would love if it could be bigger, like, like a, two pages, just a huge random map. house, random house. If you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> they're definitely listening. I love random house. They're always listening. <laughs> <laughs> Spooky. Okay, moving on. <laughs> So anyway, so that's that's what the book is about and sort of about her having to decide where she stands and realizing that she doesn't know all this history and trying to get a handle on it as best she can. So, um, you know, her asking lots of questions about her family and kind of realizing that she doesn't always get the whole story and maybe that's not even possible. So it's also about the nature of storytelling in families and about morality and politics, which I feel is very connected to art. So why? Why is politics? I just think that, I mean, stuff is, everything's political. You know, I think it's, it's, I taught a political fiction class here this past fall. And I mean, sort of the, the overarching, I think the students were, by the end of the semester, they, they had heard this a lot. That sort of, you know, what fiction isn't political? Good luck finding some fiction that is not in some way political. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we read some books that were more direct about their political themes. You know, we read, some books that particularly we, we read a bunch of books that had to do with a few books that had to do with the weather underground, which started in part here and um, some books by Michigan alums and things that sort of really connected to Ann Arbor, which was a lot of fun. Um, and that was all stuff you did to prepare that you thought I'll teach this class or is it stuff that you had read beforehand, Sugi? And- it was stuff that I had read beforehand because through wild coincidence, let's hear it. My awesome uh, thesis advisor, Sam Friedman of the New York Times, who teaches at Columbia, I had wanted to do a thesis on Sri Lankan artists in the diaspora, and there are not that many Sri Lankan artists actually. I mean, there's some in the United there there are some in the United States, but the majority of them are in Canada and England and Australia. And I didn't have the funding to do that thesis, so when I switched topics, Sam suggested that I write a thesis about literature of the weather underground because he thought I would find it similar and, and, and interesting in certain ways. And really? There's a weird spate of novels about the weather underground. And so I'd read all these books that had to do with Ann Arbor and the weather underground and activism and, and things. And it was, it was incredibly helpful. In a weird way, I did lots of indirect research for the final drafts of Love Marriage while writing my thesis for journalism school. So, so I read that in your acknowledgments. I think you, you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. But how, like, how did it impact it? Like, can you think of some sure. ways? To- well, it was a terrific excuse to call up all these novelists who had written novels about politics and activism and violence and morality and sex and you know, complication and call them up and ask them, you know, what do you think about this? You know, how would you approach this? So I talked to, I remember I talked to Susan Choi, who was, you know, incredibly nice to me and, and Dana Spioto, who wrote Eat the Document. And Eat the Document, we read in, we read in the political fiction class and I think it was a finalist for the National Book Award. She's an incredible writer. And Susan Choi, um, American what year, woman. What year did these books come out too, Sugi? Is it closer to, is it Most more these- recent or is it closer to the time when most of these books have come out maybe in the past 15 years and, and maybe even more recently than that. That's and they interesting, were, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and there were books that came out after I wrote my thesis, like Hari Kunzru, um, My Revolutions, and there's a whole bunch of memoirs and, and things like that as well. So all of, you know, really reading about the Weather Underground and, and thinking about their philosophy, their manifestos, the kind of philosophy and political stuff that they were reading as they were, you know, deciding what they stood for. 
it made me sort of ask the the parallel questions about the tigers and and do some reading and homework about that and also to to learn more about their history and realize the moments when Dana or other people had diverged from the history um and to do sort of fictional because of, things because of her personal like when you say diverged from the history it's because of that perspective that you mentioned earlier like when you're trying to hear, piece together histories of of events or place and i think some of it is also like a question of good story you know i have um one of my former professors who is actually um a michigan native james hines who has a fantastic new novel out called next and he used to say this thing, you know, I will be as accurate as is interesting. And I think he was quoting someone else, but I don't remember who, unfortunately. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's like a that's a great way to think it, about history and fiction. And I try to use that as a guideline. And I think that that was sort of what was Dana's book, Eat the Document, has this terrific driving story. And it's about a person. It's about people. It's about it's character fiction. So, I mean, there are references to whether underground figures in it, you know, Bernadine Dorn or or other people, you know, references to Black Panthers and sort of stuff like that. Mm. But they don't they're not the dominant force of the narrative in, in that particular instance. And that's the same with love marriage. I think so. It's like you touch on things, but it's not, about the family. Yes. It's the family story it's, as navigated by the marriages in the family and not told cr- chronologically either. No, it's not told chronologically. It's told in a series of vignettes and and how did that like what why did that come about sugi what was it just the natural way that the story started coming to you and you stayed with it or i guess it is the way that the story came to me but then also i was working with jamaica kincaid at the time i was in an independent study with her and then a class with her and then she was my thesis advisor and she sort of encouraged me to give each little section its space and i it's funny because I don't, I don't, at the time that I was doing it, I didn't feel the need to explain it. And so I can explain it, but it feels a little bit like I'm putting it onto it now yeah. after the fact. But I have a theory, which is well, that. Well, let's hear it. <laughs> the theory is that family stories and sort of are often told through anecdote and vignette and not in order and inconveniently. And then you have to put it together and it's a way of reading your family. And so you as the reader are put in that same position when you read this novel. And so when you went through, did you find yourself um, kind of finding an organic way of following the progression um, because you start, if my memory is serving me here, with, um, and help me with the names, please, um, Murali, the father. Murali? 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 Murali, Murali the father. And I love that I, that character. I felt like in, as the writer, I wondered if he was one of your favorites in there because of his, like, the the things that you give him, like the big heart and, and what that means, the complications of that and, and, um, and the gifts of that, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but we start, but then, but, but it's not as if it's, we start with the grandparents first in the family tree. No. It's, it's definitely moving, moving around and, and culminating though, in some ways with a new wedding. Yes. Which makes sense for a story arc. It's. Uh, yeah. But in also, I mean, Marriage is very much also a metaphor, I think, for political choice. Um, and there's sort of this, you know, I guess you'll hear me read from the beginning in a little bit, but the, I think it's the idea that, you know, there's this concept of arranged marriage versus love marriage. And in fact, there's a lot of things in between. And, and we sort of, you know, especially in sort of today's rhetorical environment, we're torn between polar opposites, but there used to be a lot of things in between and hopefully still are. 
So um, about the idea that you can choose what you want, but then you're also responsible for those choices. So it's a metaphor in a bunch of different ways, which I don't think I realized when I was writing it either. Mm. But now, on Living Writers, no, no, I'm sure you thought about it before. No, it's a revelation right now. Right. And do you are you listening to jazz when you're writing too, Sugi? I was wondering because you said you love it, and it's something that, and because of the saxophone too, it seems like. Yeah, and um, actually, I think Brian had favored us with a little um, bit of VJR's version of MIA's Galang, and I'm actually really excited because I'm interviewing him soon. So I, I sometimes blog and, and sort of one of my ways of keeping my, my toe dipped in journalistic waters is to sort of find artists I really like and, and interview them and blog about it, which is fun. And, and he's just such a great musician. I'm, I'm a little, I think, a little bit out of my, out of my depth musically <laughs> talking to him, but it's just going to be really exciting. And when will that be? So I think be- probably... Hopefully this weekend or next week. Oh, this, and then you'll post it soon. Yes. Is that is that a separate website than on your it is a separate website, but I, I usually see that. Okay. Yeah, I usually put them under articles. Ah, okay. Um, under under sort of blogging, and it's a blog called Sepia Mutiny, which is a second oh, generation yeah. South Asian blog. Yes. Okay, I did see that. So that's yeah. somewhere you can people can look out for that. And also in the latest Granta work, you have um, a, one of your stories. I do featured. have a story in, in in the latest issue of Granta. And um, and John Freeman was just here, the editor of Granta, a friend and, of the show. Yes, I, has that aired yet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and Sugi's making a joke because of the Yoon Lee show will be coming later on in the the course of the year, but she was already here. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, so I have a story in Granta called Hippocrates, and it's a little bit of my second novel, although I think it will change slightly. Oh, remind me. Let's talk about that after we hear some of Love and Marriage. Okay. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Brian Delaney in the engineering seat today. Vivi Ganeshananthan. Ganeshananthan, which I can say if we're not on the air. We'll be right back. What a fool. Shanathan is here in the studio with me, T. Hetzel, <laughs> on Living Writers. T. Hetzel just said my name so amazingly. That was <laughs> awesome. 
I'd also like to thank Brian Delaney, who, without knowing has somehow picked all of my favorite music to play earlier we had blue train by john coltrane which was my first saxophone solo when i was about 11 and then uh, cheesecake by dexter gordon which was one of the first solos transcribed solos i had to learn when i was studying the saxophone so brian delaney awesome he awesome he is like this um mystic man in the engineering chair spinning the tunes and he's got he's dj blackout his show is comes before living writers Ah. um so you can also tune in and hear him spinning some songs um in the early afternoon on Wednesdays. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, let's... Could you read us some of Love, Marriage? Sure. Um, And just to remind people who might be joining us now, this is from the point of view of the daughter and the family, and it starts off with the story of her parents. In this globe-scattered Sri Lankan family, we speak only of two kinds of marriage. The first is the arranged marriage. The second is the love marriage. In reality, there is a whole spectrum in between, but most of us spend years running away from the first toward the second. Among the categories that bleed outside these two carefully delineated boundaries, the self-arranged marriage, the outside marriage, the cousin marriage, the village marriage, the marriage abroad. There is the marriage without consent. There is the marriage under pressure. There is even marrying the enemy, who, it turns out, is not an enemy at all. You cannot go unfettered into a family's history if you are one of them. The nature of certain unions will be hidden from you, rephrased to you, the subject dropped, the music changed. There is proper marriage. There is improper marriage. This Tamil family speaks of the latter in whispers. The rule is that all families begin with a marriage, and the other way around. You don't marry a person, my father says, to no one in particular. You marry a family. The self-arranged marriage. My father has married my mother's family so successfully that he now fits into it as well as, if not better than, he fits into his own. My mother is an Aravindran, and further back than that, a Vairavan, which means that the members of her family, especially her siblings, are nosy, noisy, close, and concerned with domestic comforts. Years after they stopped living where they had always lived, in a small house in the village of Urlu, in the town of Jaffna, they remain connected by telephone lines and carefully written aerograms. They never forget birthdays, favorite curries, or unkindnesses. They were once three, but are now two. My father loves my mother's family, and in return for that they draw him in. They have forgotten that when he wanted to marry my mother, they circled around her protectively from the far corners of the globe opposed to her marrying a man they had never even met. They only remember that she has a happy life in a country far safer than the one in which she was born. And 25 years after their wedding, my parents like to give the impression that their marriage was arranged because they are both very proper. But their secret is out. They fell in love. Those who are watching can see how in certain moments they become each other. This has been their way of falling in love the acquisition of each other's habits, mannerisms, preferences, and witticisms. They have built a wall around their tunis, and each brick laid in place is a secret that only they share, or perhaps an exception one has made for the other. They have become an example of how you can have your love and eat it too. They let everyone think that they took no responsibility for the way they came together. They engaged in all the dances of manners and the ceremonies involved in a traditional marriage, which is to say, an arranged marriage. This, they say, is not a romance. 
It begins with an introduction, a handshake, which is not the custom of the East, but has become the greeting of the West. The touching of fingers is a strange, luscious intimacy, a preface to the story. These two, my parents, have not acknowledged their secret, perhaps not even to each other, and they have exchanged rings and vows and hearts without eliciting the frowns that improper marriages frequently do. And I'll stop there. Thanks, Sugi. Um, thanks for reading from Love Marriage. That was... Because you will, you're going to be reading tomorrow at the art museum. I am with Lorna Goodison. I am also friend of the show, <laughs> lovely Lorna, lovely Lorna Goodison. And and so, but tomorrow, what will you be reading, Sugi? Tomorrow, I will be reading from Granta. <laughs> from from, so you can get a copy of work. Yes, you and can get a copy. With you. Of work. Yes, <laughs> read along. And so, is this part of? Um, it's part of your the the current novel that you're working on. Sort of, yeah. I think um, a version of it will end up in the novel. Becca, are you listening? And she knows that. And um, yeah, I think it's 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 sort of a. It's I think certain things in it will change, but but yeah, it's it's pretty much what I'm working on at the moment. You can tell how articulate I am about that. <laughs> well, and did this when when did this project start, Sugi? How long? Because Love Marriage was that eight eight years in the making? Was it? Yeah, uh, and was with huge huge gaps in the middle. And that was well, actually... because you were getting like a, a master's degree in journalism from Columbia and things like that, I, right? I, I, I guess. No, I was mostly just sitting around like a big slacker. Um, no, I, I finished college with a, a draft of Love Marriage that was about 150 pages and it didn't actually have the uncle character in it. And yeah, really seriously for serious. He totally was not in there. And that seems almost unbelievable. Having read the, the novel now, yeah. how it ended up <laughs> yes yes indeed um sometimes i have people who ask me you know things like is this novel about you and i'm sort of like no and i can prove it in fact because if you go back and look um it's pretty interesting to to go back and look at the first draft of this novel which i think that that it, the story really needed an occasion to be told and he sort of presented himself and he just got more and more interesting and more and more interesting and he sort of took over the book oh so that's why you added the uncle, yeah, who was the former t- Tamil tiger, yeah, um, because it needed an occasion to be told. Yeah, it kind of. It... And, and how did you know that, Sui? I, I had a friend. I was telling. I don't remember. Maybe I was telling one of my students this, but um, I had a friend from Iowa who was reading later drafts of Love Marriage, and and at this point, the uncle had become a character. Um, a little bit more, but hadn't sort of taken over the book yet in, in this form. And James said to me, and James is an awesome reader, he said, Sugi, I think you should go read Portnoy's Complaint. And I said, Philip Roth? Philip Roth. Philip Roth, a boy, his mother, and lots New of... New Jersey. And lots of, <laughs> lots of thoughts of sex. You know, it's a very focused book. And I think what... So I was trying to connect James's advice with my draft, and I was sort of, James, what do you mean? And he said, you know, everything in that book is pointed at, is very single-minded, that book. And and it was actually great advice, because I went in and read Portnoy's Complaint, and I thought, you know, he's right. As much as that book has sort of little digressions and things, it's all pointed in that the direction of those things. Um, and it, and if you were pointing your novel then in that direction as you're going through in a, another revision of it, um, was it then, is that when the politics of it started to emerge more, Sugi? 
I think that's that's probably correct. And I think also, you know, I was 19 when I started and I was 27 when I finished. So there's so much change going on in right. you as a writer during that point. Yeah, I think that that's time. true. And I think also the world was changing. I mean, I started writing the book before September 11th and before the tsunami. Mm. And yes. both of those things actually ended up in the book in in weird ways. And it was a less explicitly political world before that, I think, or at least that was my experience of it. And afterwards, it was sort of a world that called upon people to decide where they stood. And I wanted to reflect that in certain ways for the narrator. So, um, And the uncle sort of demanded her to, demanded that she answer certain questions. And so it gave um, the point for the narrator to show the struggle that yeah. she's going through. Yeah, I think so. And also, you know, very specific reason, you know, lots of people sort of wander around asking questions about their family in the archives of, you know, one elderly relative's mind or another. And I wanted her to have a little bit more urgency um, for those questions, you know, a little bit more drive to try and, you know, have a little bit of a, it's a terrible metaphor, but a shot clock, you know, going on, on her investigation. Not that, not that everything is sort of tidally resolved at the end, but she, it's not. It's almost more about the choosing. Yeah. Like, that's what's underscored, it seems like. Yeah, I think that, you know, she sort of realizes that she's not, she's sort of thought all along that, that she's a bystander, and she's not, she doesn't get to be a bystander, and she didn't, hadn't really realized that before, I think. Um, what w- w- Did you go back to Sri Lanka for research purposes? I it did. It seemed like you did in the acknowledgments. That's why I asked Sugi. I did. Um, I wrote the first draft of Love Marriage without having ever been to Sri Lanka. And then when I was a graduate student at the workshop, I did go to Sri Lanka. And I went all over the country and had a really just, I think, saw a lot and learned a lot. And I, the novel, the draft of the novel that I, I graduated with, I, I added maybe, you know, 70 pages to it and then had in, in that year off and then took it to the workshop and it was the first thing I put up in, in a novel workshop that we were in. And so the whole thing, Sugi? Maybe the first hundred pages. And then I sort of took all that feedback and I put it in a box and I didn't look at it for roughly three years, actually. And I thought about Why it. Why was that? I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do with it. And I kind of thought, all right, maybe this will never get published. And, you know... I actually, on that research trip, the, I guess it was the first one, I guess it was the first one, I had bought a book in Sri Lanka that was about sort of the history of certain areas, and I found an incident in it that really sort of sparked my imagination for a second book, and Ethan Kanan was teaching at the workshop, and he was teaching a novella workshop, and I really wanted to get in, but I hadn't registered for the class, so I needed to talk my way in, so I didn't you have could a novella. Do it. <laughs> you could do it. I believe in you. <laughs> Thanks, T. Well, I didn't have a novella. So what I did was I took this incident, and which ended up becoming sort of the beginning of the second novel. And I, I, I wrote about that incident and did it on a pretty fast turnaround and only ended up with about 30 pages. But Ethan was nice and sort of, you know, allowed me in the class. And I was the first person who was workshopped and, and that turned into the second book. So and so is that something that you're still then working yeah, that's, on? That's so in the it's, second novel. It's, okay, yeah. so it's not a novella. It's going to be. It's, it's, a novel. it's become like an accordion. You're pulling. Yes. Button. Oh my god. <laughs> it's like three accordions. It's three accordions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor Living Writers today. Vivi Ganeshanathan. 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 
the best family in the world. Ganeshananthan. <laughs> this is T. Hetzel. Um, again, you've got living writers. Brian Delaney can't believe it. He's shaking his head. <laughs> we'll be back with Sugi and her novel, Love Marriage. Today, Vivi Ganeshanathan is here. And it's so nice to be here. And for the record, T. Hetzel is saying my name beautifully when we're on break. Repeatedly, in fact. It's like a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good thing it's live, Sugi. Um, and if I hope you've been here for, for the hour with us. We're, we're coming into the, the, the end moments, like well, our last quarter, um, before sports report starts. <laughs> Um, but you've heard a little bit of love marriage. Um, and it's kind of funny because Sugi mentioned that um, you're going to be an efficient uh, at, at a wedding soon. I am. I'm so, very, very excited about this. A friend of mine asked me to offici- officiate her wedding. And I've never done this before. And I think it's going to be really interesting and fun. And I think just it'll be really it'll just be really interesting to do it because I think um, are you like uh, registered with the no. Unitarian or what? What's the one online? 
<laughs> it's like the universalist life something. Okay. I yes. think maybe I got to get one of those I can marry people for a day licenses and it's going to be fun. It's I think it's more than a day, Sugi. If you're going to do it, you could get My some more gigs. God. And you could bring a book along. <laughs> Love marriage could be in a little kiosk. It's just really funny because right, you know, the book has this title, but you know, it's it's um the title is a a a double-edged thing and means sort of many things once you start reading the book, but it's sort of it's funny because you know, people look at the title and then I'm, I'm sort of like it's actually a book that's sort of about the effects of violence on civil society and that they're like, "Oh, <laughs> Oh. As I laugh, that's nice, right? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's um it can it makes for some interesting situations. But yeah, I'm excited to officiate my friend's wedding. I think it'll be a, a hoot and and also just really an honor. And and so and then you you said you might also well at some point be going back to Sri Lanka again because you're you're the novel that's turning into like three accordions. Yeah. Um is is that is it still like undergoing part of the research phase or what is yeah. I think it's I think I would just be sort of going because I haven't been since the war ended. And, and they, they officially announced that, is it May 19th, 2009? That's, yeah, that's about right. Is it yeah. true? Because I, I read it on <laughs> is Wikipedia. It, is it so, true? Well, after reading your novel, yeah. I'm not sure I believe. It. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there are certainly a number of things, um, political and political and ethnic tensions that remain to be resolved. Um and hopefully there are a lot of people willing to participate in that process of reconciliation. And but, you know, even the language of, and I'm, you know, obviously they weren't the ones writing it on Wikipedia, but, um, but the government, it said, let's see, where was it? It was the, the president of Sri Lanka declared the end of the insurgency and the defeat of the LTTE mm-hmm. following the death of, so it's, you know, it's underscored the defeat of. Like yeah. that's those those seem like fighting words instead of something that's to be mended. Really. Well, I mean, I think that the the something to be mended is really sort of the it's a it's sort of among the various ethnic communities of Sri Lanka, and you know the the war was between um, the Tamil Tigers and security forces of the government. You know, hopefully not between the various civilian populations that belong to different communities. So I think that's where reconciliation has to take place, and of course that. Hopefully the, the government of Sri Lanka will be helping in that process in some way. And I think it's so interesting that you mentioned the Wikipedia entries. The Wikipedia entries on Sri Lanka are often locked for dispute resolution. And huh. was it was it locked when you saw it? Oh, I can't remember. They're I mean, often locked. Just <laughs> often any article related to Sri Lanka is just locked. Because people are going in and always changing things. Yes. Hmm. Yes. I'll just... Yes. Yes. And are you are you still the vice president of um, the South Asian Journalist Association? I actually finished my term on the board this January and they've got a a wonderful new board. But I was um, the vice president of the South Asian Journalist Association and also I'm just sort of a a general board member for I was I was a part of the organization for I'm still a part of the organization. I was a part of the board for two years and they're really great and do a lot to help. people of South Asian descent who are interested in becoming journalists and also to sort of promote discussion of how South Asia and the South Asian diaspora are covered. So it was really interesting. I learned a lot doing it. And it was a it was a I I really I sort of I have a lot of appreciation for that that organization, which was really, I guess, probably one of the first ethnic organizations I joined of my own volition without being encouraged by my parents in any way. I just sort of found they've or I guess they found me and and we're sort of like, join us. It'll be fun. Was one of the professors that founded it involved with Columbia too? Yes. Was that okay? Yes. That was maybe 
And I've actually known, and, and T is referring to Sri Srinivasan, who is um, a tech reporter and, and sort of just all around um, amazing person who is the Dean of Student Affairs. And is that his current title? Anyway, he's a professor at Columbia and has been promoted and, and sort of to, to another title that I'm not remembering perhaps. But, um, and he, and I think some other people read my, I think they saw my byline in the Wall Street Journal when I was an intern, when I was in college. And they wrote to me and were sort of like, you know, you might be interested in this organization. And I thought that was so, it was so nice. Um, Cause it never occurred to me that such an organization might exist. And then when I got into the, I well, must've been, workshop, in, they must've been impressed with you too. I think they know like with what I, I you mean, were writing, you have the mind, your mind on the page. I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know that economic indicators <laughs> said so much about my mind and its quality, but um, they were just really great about, they're really great about introducing people to each other. You know, the, the Q and A in the back of the book, which is between me and Suketu Meta, who's the author of Maximum City. Um, Suketu and I actually met because of Saja, because when I got into the workshop, you know, people in Saja said, Oh, Suketu went to the workshop you know, so and so many years ago, you should talk to him before you go. And they put us in touch and he was really terrific to me. So um, a lot of really wonderful friends that I have now, people who are wonderful mentors and supporters of my writing and my learning about writing, I, even fiction writers, I, I met through Saja. And so, and it's one of your hats, like the journalism, as well as the fiction. I like hats. <laughs> You do actually. It's true. That is a Sugi fact, actually. That's one of the first things I learned about you, you back in that? the fall. You told me. Oh. <laughs> you said, wait till it gets colder because I have so many hats. <laughs> I was not wearing a hat that day, in fact. <laughs> but I was told of these hats. Said hats. Um, I have a few. It's true. And so when, when will this, the next novel be coming out? Not to pressure you. Becca, are you listening? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Random house tapped in. Um, uh, so, I don't know. I I think it was um, maybe originally slated for next spring, and I think that's no longer the case, although I don't think it's going to be bumped much farther than that. Because you're still writing it, Susie? Basically, I'm still, I'm still writing it. That's the thing about the writing. Sometimes it just keeps going. And, yes, it, it will hopefully be out soon but in the meantime you could go see chang ray lee read tonight at borders or or come and see me tomorrow night at Uma. exactly no no pressure. no pressure dodging and weaving over your team yes. bobbing and ducking oh dear no um more, well, I'm also wondering, Sui, because you're going, you're going back maybe for some more research purposes on the book, like so another trip. What do you think? Well, sh I, it's hard to imagine. I mean, once you're being inside the like the the imagery and the the fiction and the history of Sri Lanka, um, do you think some of your projects will will keep finding their genesis there, or or do you think? What do you? I don't Probably. know. Probably. Um. It is it what pulls like, you? Or, yeah. Well, I mean, I find it a very compelling setting, and it, it also is... Many things are plausible there. Sometimes I'll write something, and I'll think, well, that's kind of bananas, and then I'll call up someone who's, say, an anthropologist who studies Sri Lanka, and on at least three occasions that's happened where I've, I've called someone up and I've said, well, is this plausible? And they've said, oh, yes, I've actually heard of something very similar. And so it's this place in which so many different varieties of things that I'm interested in have happened, not necessarily things that I find pleasing, but things that I, I find interesting. 
have happened that I feel like I can set so many different stories that I'm interested in there. And, and I know that I'll do the research or, and that I'll do the homework and that at the moments when it does diverge, that I'll, I'll feel sort of confident enough to do that. Um, and that it's just, it's just a setting where a lot, of, a lot of crazy things have happened, actually. I mean, as, as Suketu actually says in the, in the back of the book, he, he likes to say that, you know, Sri Lanka is a country with hardliner Buddhist monks, Hindu suicide bombers, and poor persecuted Muslims, and that this goes against so many people's stereotypes of all of those things that um, people don't quite know what to make of it. And I think, you know, of course, that's... that's you mean this, the book, in Love, the, in Marriage? The, in the or, Q&A, it says oh, that yes, in, in, in yes. the back. And, um, and it's just sort of, I mean, obviously, that's, that's sort of reductive, but... Um, very reductive, but... It's just a place where things are sort of turned on their heads a lot. And, you know, Sri Lanka had a Prevention of, Terror of Terrorism Act in the 70s. And we had the Patriot Act relatively recently. So it was just interesting to see the ways in which certain things in Sri Lankan history have prefigured other things here. Yes. And, and how it captures your imagination. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. I mean, it's incredibly, it's an incredibly gorgeous country with a violent and complicated history and it's a real challenge to master it it's this moving mutable thing so sort of like I can never I will never be done I, I suspect which is both daunting and it's nice to have a constant source of you know I, I know I will always be interested in that Thank you so much for being on the program today, Sugi. Thank you so much for having me, T. And and again, you're going to be tomorrow at the Art Museum reading at 5 p.m. Yes. Um, at with, Uma. With the lovely Lorna Goodison. With the lovely Lorna Goodison. Friend of the show. <laughs> exactly, as you are now. Thanks so much for being here. And I should also mention, Tom Lynch will be reading tomorrow at 7 p.m. at Nicola's um, Bookshop in Westgate Mall. Oh, awesome. Um, so, yeah, it's a big day, big day tomorrow <laughs> in, in the city of Ann Arbor. Um, thanks for listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today we've had Sugi Ganeshanathan. And I'm so happy about it. Please um, listen again. Thanks for being with us today. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
puts it around the boards. Hensick is there, puts it out in front. Shot attempt by Turnbull, he scores! Travis Turnbull took a bouncing puck in front and knocks it in the net. Wolverines extend that lead, it's now three to one. Eight seconds left to go. He was up it into neutralized. Five seconds left to go. Hensick gets the puck, sends it all the way in over the goal, and time is gonna expire. The Wolverines have won it. The number seven ranked Michigan Wolverines with the upset at home over the number four Boston College Eagles in an exciting game here at Yosai Arena. And welcome to 